The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Today, Romans 8, 18 through 25, we're just really picking up where we left off last week, uh, working our way passage by passage through uh, the greatest chapter in these great truths of the, the Bible. And if you're new with us or uh, just come around, hopefully you've noticed some things uh, about redemption. And that's our commitments to sequential exposition in our preaching. We come, our, our, the normal fare, sometimes we do thematic uh, 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 preaching and series and things like that, but the normal fare, the normal way we come to the scriptures, we take a section or even a whole book, and we just work sequentially through it, verse by verse, passage by passage, section by section, through the book. And this is so we can follow the, the flow of the argument. We can get to the, the bottom line and really understand what God, by His Spirit, through these authors, had to teach them and us today. So hopefully you've noticed that, and that's the way we're working our way through Romans 8. Hopefully, if uh, or maybe uh, if you're new with us or Maybe not, but maybe you've also noticed some other things about our church. One of which is all the babies that have been born recently. I think we had a dozen born in, in 2021. We've had five already in our church family born in 2022. We've got three coming in the next few weeks here, like in the first of August. There's three more coming this fall and uh, two that I'm told of in early 2023. Something's in the water around here. But why do I bring this up? To put all of our, our pregnant ladies on, uh, 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 on the pedestal here to embarrass them? No, no. It's really I bring this up because our text uses this illustration of pregnancy to reveal to us some pretty significant foundational truths about how we live our life now and how we uh, endure through the sufferings of this present day in our life now as we await something greater. So you consider with me just for a moment the human gestational journey, otherwise known as the 40 weeks of pregnancy, right? Pregnancy typically begins with great excitement. In some cases, maybe it's a, a surprise, but it begins with excitement. A change is happening. A new life has been formed in the womb. As pregnancy goes on, it, uh, it goes through its different trimesters and its different seasons. As, but as you get closer to the uh, due date, the more uncomfortable uh, it becomes. There's trouble sleeping. There's uh, an inability to do just the normal movements and things that used to be true. At least so I'm told, right? Speaking only from observation here, obviously. But in that third trimester, as the day begins to draw nearer, those contractions begin to happen to prepare the womb for delivery. There's those sporadic Braxton Hicks, those false contractions that come that happen up until delivery that are increasing in frequency and intensity. The day of delivery, I'm told, it's excruciating pain. Why medical advancements have been able to numb much of that. But in the midst of that, there's cries, there's groans. And as you talk to families, maybe in, within your own family, have some pretty funny things that might have been said in those groans and crying out during labor. But how does a woman, how does she endure the intolerable heat of summer in waiting for that? That's right. Or specifically, how does she endure the excruciating pain of labor. What is the key ingredient? It's called hope. 
There's hope is what enables a woman to endure through this. The power of hope that, uh, uh, that allows a, a woman to anticipate the arrival of a son or a daughter, that blessing of a son or daughter, this baby boy or girl, uh, far outweighs the severity of suffering in labor. Such is the principle at play in our verses today that the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, brings out for us. And so I set the stage in that way, but let's come to the text now to see what our text has to say, and then we will go from there. Join me in your Bible. Romans 8, verse 18 through 25 say this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word for God's people. Now, what are we to make of this illustration? What are we to make of these truths? If you're uh, scratching your head or wondering what's at the bottom, how can we sum up our understanding of this text? It is this. You can write this down. It's on the screen here. But it is simply this, that the greatness of glory far outweighs the severity of suffering. Let me say that again, for it's important for our understanding. It's at the center of this text and the argument with which Paul is making here. It is the the central point that leads us forward in our understanding and application of this text. It's the greatness of glory far outweighs the severity of suffering. Our passage begins in verse 18 with an assertion. Assertion, it's connected to the inheritance that we left off on last week. Now, remember last week, or if you weren't here last week, the previous passage is all about the great privileges of being in God's family, being adopted by Him. And what do we gain in that? Well, we gain the Spirit who helps us fight sin. We gain the presence of of God the Father Himself. And we also gain the inheritance or the privilege of suffering like Christ. And it kind of left us there. And so now Paul, he's bring, he's, he's, it's all connected here. And I, and I love how, the, 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 how real the Bible is in this. Because even as it like is talking about the truths of the Scripture and these glorious things that have changed about us and, and the inheritance that we have, it does not minimize or diminish or ignore the reality of the pain of our existence. It's not, hey, everything's going to be great. Just don't worry about how hard things might be. No, it, it's real here, and that's what the passage is, is bringing us to today. And he begins, like I said, in verse 18 with an assertion. He says, for I consider here a certain thing. Now, you're, we've talked about this before. We've seen it in other passages. It's uh, throughout our New Testament here. But this word consider is, is, a, is a weighty word in, in our Bible. 
It's an accounting term. It's used in, like, if you're, you were figuring sums and all that. But really what it means is to take stock of what you have or what is missing, and you weigh out all the evidence or what is there, and then based on what the results are, it leads you then in your understanding. He said this back in chapter 6, at the beginning, like in our salvation, when our sanctification begins here, he, he said, it's, it's, we also have to consider some things. In our relationship to sin, uh, this is Romans 6, 11, he says, For I consider myself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's where it begins in our life. Like, I'm dead to that sin. I'm now alive in Christ. I've considered it in my mind. I've weighed out all the facts. And now this is how I'm going to live. Sin is not my master. I'm free from the penalty. I'm free from its power. And now I can live in a way. And he's saying the same thing here. Even in the suffering that comes from our sin. Mind you, this is the, the flow here. I think we can broaden out it's our understanding of it to suffering of all kinds here, but he's specifically talking about the suffering against and because of sin. Consequences that happen are suffering in this life, the suffering that happens against or because of sin in our life. And so he's making a statement here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is being revealed in us. And so in the same way now that Paul has considered this, he is making an assertion. His mind is settled. He has resolved that the greatness of glory that is coming his way far outweighs the severity of suffering in his life. And so what is this glory? Let's just, before we take it any farther, we need to consider some things. We need to understand why he can say this and come to such resolution as this. Well, what is glory? It's what is going to be revealed to us. We'll see it in greater detail later, but it's the redemption of our bodies. It's the consummation. It's, a, it's glory when we own our bodies and our physical existence in this earth. Now, it is that that is the glory that he is talking about when we will be free from sin and decay, when we will be with Christ and the saints forever in heaven. We already know we're free from sin's penalty and its power. We're no longer condemned. We are no longer under its mastery, but we're not yet free from sin's presence, are we? But that is in heaven. So Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 1, 4. He says, our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. It's on hold. It's waiting to be revealed in the last time. This final treasure, this final piece of our inheritance when we will fully and forever be in God's presence where no sin is anymore. He's considered this. He's thinking future. He's thinking ahead. But he's considered some things about this life. Why he can say this as he's thinking about heaven and then he's thinking about the suffering of this present time in his life now. He's considered some things. And this, this is important for us because what has he considered? He's considered the character of God. We're going, working our way through Romans, we see just the glory of who he is, that God is holy, sovereign, and good, always, all the time, never without fail. He is then worthy of our worship. This is the God. When we serve, Paul's considered this, he's convinced of it, but he's also considered the reality of human sinfulness. Romans 1 through 3 is all about this. You come to this conclusion that the world is broken. All of creation has been affected by this. We ourselves have been affected by this. And sin is more persuasive and pervasive than we give it credit for. He's considered the works of God. 
how God works within human uh, existence and how he relates to us and how, how uh, that relationship is way more complex. And when it comes to suffering, suffering is way more complex and we uh, give it uh, credit sometimes. Where we've seen in the past and where our Bible teaches us to put away those simple notions, the retributive justice framework that we've talked about in other messages, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people when it comes to our suffering, and, and that the world works in this kind of like karma type uh, 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 framework. And, and Paul's considered these things like, that's, that's, that's not how it works. God doesn't work that way. Or he's considered the purposes of God. God has one mission, redeeming humanity, a sinful humanity to himself. He has one gospel work. He has one mission to bring uh, many sons and daughters to glory. That Christ was sent for this very purpose, to redeem men to himself that will be consummated then in glory. It's considered the reality of following God. He's realigned his expectations about what faithful obedience looks like in this life, that suffering is normal and good, that we're not to be surprised by it, that it is a, it's just the, the normal day-to-day -day, uh, part of our life as we walk in this world. Peter says the, uh, uh, highlights the same thing in 1 Peter 4. It's on the screen here. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So here's, here's the thing, right? Like sometimes temptation comes up. Sometimes hardship comes up. We get, uh, we're sick and we're like, man, what is happening to me? Catches us off guard. Don't be surprised. This is what is normal because of the reality of sin in the world, because of the brokenness of our bodies and creation around us. We should not be surprised, but rather what, how's the verse go on? Rather ignore it. Just grin and bear it. What does the verse say? But rejoice. Rejoice. Like that? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, suffering is normal and good. Suffering is a normal part of life. Christ walked through it. He showed us how Paul and, and, uh, and others before us have walked through uh, the hardships of life and the temptations that come with this world, the people around us here as well. And so we can rejoice knowing that this is a sign that we are of the Lord and it points us forward to the great joy that we will have when Christ returns. So these things have been considered. They've been Paul's been convinced of it and convicted by the truthfulness of them. And I pray that even you now, you can say this, that you can underline and highlight verse 18 because this is a resolution of your life that the greatness of God far outweighs or the greatness of glory far outweighs the severity of any suffering that may come our way, that what is coming is far better than anything that we are experiencing now. Question then, and what he builds on, after the assertion is, what do we do in the meantime? So he uses in the verses here, as he probably saw, these parallel examples of creation and humanity. What do we do as we wait here? Well, these parallel examples for both creation and us, we're waiting, we're groaning, and we are hoping. Do you see the overlap there? We're waiting, groaning, and hoping. And so let's look at this more closely. Well, we can say that. Here's what we do in the meantime. We wait or what will be. Write that down. It's the first point here. 
It kind of goes back and forth here. We won't just take it necessarily verse by verse as we go. We're going to see these two things parallel alongside of one another. We wait for what will be. And so how then do we wait? Well, look at verse 19. We wait eagerly for the creation. The creation is all of God's created order, right? The world, the universe in which we live, the animals and all of its inhabitants here. The creation waits with eager longing. Now, this, the, the, the phrase here is pretty awesome. It's like waiting with like strained neck, like looking eagerly out and anticipating the arrival of something. It's, there's, there's like this, this anxiety that comes with it and, uh, in a good way, like this agitation, this fidgety, this, where you're consumed until it happens. The creation is waiting, just like your kids wait for when like, you know, Papa and Grams come. Or when, people, when, when somebody that you love, you know, and you've been waiting for them to come, and maybe you've been tracking them a little bit. Like, we can cheat, because we can track and watch, like, on the iPhone, and, you know, find my friends. And, all right, they're in San Marcos. All right, they're passing Bucky's. They're going to be here in a few minutes, right? I like that. Like how we would wait. Thoughts like this remind me when Malachi was born, uh, there was a lot of excitement around it. And we had a, a C-section, so we were there, but we didn't know, boy, girl, whatever it was going to be. We had all these people, family and some friends that were like waiting there. And as I brought Malachi around, everybody's like straining, like, is it, is it a boy? Is it a girl? How is it? And they were waiting with this eager longing to discover we'd had a boy or girl. Maybe some of your students in recent days, as you've been waiting for the star test results to come out in the last few weeks. Maybe not so much. But what is it that creation is waiting for with this type of eager longing? Waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. See, creation around us is waiting for the second coming of Christ. It's waiting because it knows that once we are glorified, that when when Christ comes and all this is wrapped up, that it too will then uh, be set free, that it's freedom, that the new heavens and the new earth are not long behind it. And so itself, and and we have to be careful of like personifying creation. He's using this as an example like this, and so we don't want to make it too much, but creation is what is waiting for, with this eager longing for what's going to happen to us because it knows then that its redemption and the curse that was put on it will then be lifted. So it's waiting for something that is yet to come, what will be in the future. And it's not just the earth too, but we ourselves, we're not being saved away from the earth, but with it in the same sense. And so jump over to verse 23 for just a minute here, and you'll see, he says, and not only the creation... But we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit, so come back to that, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. It's the same language. See, we too ourselves are waiting for this or should be waiting for what will be. Suffering and our struggle, we have to wait for this adoption as sons. You might be thinking a second, like, Redemption of our body is like, wait a minute, we talked about that last week. Like, that's something that we have, right? Like, we've been adopted and saved and say, yeah, we have been. But this is the already and not yet of our salvation. This dynamic that is played all throughout the scriptures. Israel experienced uh, uh, this. We experience this as, as believers here where we have this, uh, uh, this foretaste of it. But we are waiting for, for the payload later. That's what he means by the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. The first fruits concept is like think in your garden. 
right? I've got a garden uh, now, and it's mostly played out now because it's hot, and so everything's just like burning up and all that. But when your garden comes up, there's like those first fruits, those, those choice fruits. So I grow peppers, you know, habaneros and jalapenos and some tomatoes and uh, a few other things. But there's those few that come right away. This year, I don't know about you, but my peppers, man, they were zinging hot. They're really good. There's there's some first fruits, but then there was a waiting, is waiting a little bit, and maybe a few more, but then the payload, the harvest came later. Or maybe we could think of like the first fruits concept like marriage. Like right now, like the first fruit is the engagement, where there's the commitment, but not the consummation. Where there's, there's a commitment to this person, but you're waiting for what will be and the joys of marriage together. The same is true for believers here. As we wait for what will be, we've experienced just the first fruits of the Holy Spirit in us, in all of its glory, of Him dwelling in us, yes, of Him helping us fight sin and bringing truth to our mind. He is that down payment, but payday is coming, for much more awaits us in glory. That's awesome. But see, the severity of suffering then is diminished as we wait for what will be. Creation is waiting. We are waiting. Well, maybe you're thinking, like, what? Give us a greater picture. Like, what are we waiting for? What is it that is yet to come? Go with, come over to Isaiah 35 for a second. I've been reading Isaiah in my times with the Lord in the morning, and I was reading this this week. It was so good. Isaiah 35, if you're unfamiliar with Isaiah, kind of just set your Bible and it's probably right about in the middle. If you hit Psalms, turn to the right and you'll find it. it's a long book, a great book. First 39 chapters are all about warning and judgment. Follow the Lord, follow the Lord, follow the Lord. Judgment is coming. The latter half of the book, lots of comfort, lots of hope. The Messiah is promised here. But you get to Isaiah 35, and God gives Isaiah this vision here of what will be. Now, there's some aspects of it that I think Israel experienced in in partiality as they were uh, taken out of captivity. Israel's about to go into captivity when Isaiah is writing this here. And they experience a bit of it, but not all of it. But look at this. Both the hope of creation and also God's people So let me just read it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So even this, this, this idea of, of the wilderness and the desert blossoming, something new and transformative happening, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart. Now listen, maybe that's you today. Maybe you are. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're feeling weary of body. Maybe the things that are happening in your life and the world around you where your mind is anxious or you, you don't know what is going to happen this week, tomorrow in your job, your marriage, that relationship, and whatever it might be. Listen to this. It's for you. Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come, will come, will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come. He will come and save you. As sure as your salvation is, as sure as the sun will come up tomorrow, 
God will save you. This future is guaranteed. The things that await us in glory far outweigh the severity of your suffering of body or mind today. Listen to the hope. It goes on. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf and stop. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See, the, the, when Jesus was on earth, they got a taste of this. They got a first fruit of what happens when the king is around, when Jesus is present. How much more? How much more later? For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. Thirsty ground, springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. Somebody, Jesus prays for that, right? Like, I can't wait for this day. We're waiting for these things. And now we can... We can go and we can try to understand how does this, what does this look like? How does it, and we can try to uh, grasp with greater clarity and detail of how all this stuff is going to be played out. And it's, you know, it's a good exercise in, 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 in trying to understand and imagine what heaven might be like. But the reality is we just have to wait to get there. We have to wait to get there. And when we take our minds there, the thoughts of the future that we await, especially in our suffering against sin, help us wait for what will be. The glory that is to be revealed to us far outweighs the suffering that we experience now. That the passing pleasures of sin can't and won't ever compare to the eternal joy in Christ. See, when's the last time you were in a long line? Been to Schlitterbahn lately? Yeah, trying to ride some of the rides? You've been in line and you find a sign like this, right? Going up the stairs, you're like, at this point in approximately two hours... You will be experiencing America's favorite water ride. It's a favorite, isn't it, bud? And how, well, how's everybody like in line? If they're at that spot, how, what's everybody like at that point? Full of lots of joy and anticipation, waiting for what will be, right? No, what, nobody wants to admit it, right? Or do you hear lots of groans, complaints? What's taking so long? These people don't know what they're doing. Why is everybody else here? Oh, it's so hot. I'm sweaty. I'm burning. I didn't put anything else on. Well, oh, man, somebody smells really bad, but it's better be worth it. It is. It's always worth it. The same is spiritually true as we wait. See, here's the second thing that Romans 8 brings out for us is we groan for what should be. Come back to Romans 8 for just a moment. We love Schlitterbahn at our house. What a poignant example of what is going on here. See, we groan for what should be intertwined with our waiting, for what will be, for what we know is yet to come. As we wait, there's also this groaning of the earth and its inhabitants for what should be and what is not. Just like the pain and the perseverance that happens in childbirth and the groans that, that accompany the, the discomfort of pregnancy, so too we groan for what 
should be. Come back to the text here in verse 22. You see it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What are these groans? What is it crying out? Like this is crying out in agony. Groans of pain together all across the globe. Animals, plants, the universe, everything is groaning. We experience it through disasters, right? The groans of hurricanes, the groans of tornadoes, the groans of earthquakes, the groans of thunder, and the groans of our earth even now as we experience a drought. Together, groaning here, crying out just like in labor, but not crying out in defeat. Crying out with the hope of what should be, what was broken, what sin and the curse that was unleashed on the earth uh, 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 affected. And yet the hope that will come. See, the irony is in that in the devastation, in the disasters, in the destruction, bring us this hope of the sign of the times. This is normal. It's what Jesus said, and it's the hope that is coming here. It's only temporary. And see, we too... In our struggle against sin and perseverance through suffering, we too groan inwardly. It's what he says in verse 23, right? Like, not only creation, we ourselves, we have the first roots, we groan inwardly. See, church, as believers, there's this discomfort. There should be this discomfort with the world and the way things are. This isn't our home. This isn't the way things should be. We know the glory of God. We know what should be, what could be. We read in, in Genesis, or maybe you've not read Genesis, then come tonight to read in our Bible better, and you'll read all about what was and what was broken and what was taken away that leads then to the promise and to the hope that we have of what will be. And we know the glory of God. We know what should and could be. And then we see the devastating consequences of sin all around us, and we groan. We lament. This is what happens when human suffering and the sovereignty of God collide. We groan for what should be. We groan, we lament for our own situations. We walk through the consequences of maybe foolish decisions that we once made in younger days or in our past, and now we're bearing them out, and we groan. Knowing the forgiveness of God, yes. Knowing that He's working out it for His good, yes. But it causes us to groan. We groan for others. We watch them wreck their life apart from Christ. We groan, we lament. We ask God to come through. See, here's the thing: even as we're groan and we're waiting, let the let every time a storm happens. Every time creation groans, every time you're driving down the road and you see the effects of a drought, you see a, a brown, dead, dying patch of grass or a field or trees that are longing for a drink of water. Every time we see this, let it be a reminder of two foundational truths. Suffering because of sin is more pervasive than we give it credit for. It's more pervasive than we realize. But secondly, the glory will be greater than we realize. See, every time we experience this, let us be here as we, as we, as we watch it and we see it around it. Let it, let, even as it groans within us, we can turn our groans not into grumbling. No, this isn't the complaining. This isn't like Israelite wandering in the wilderness complaining because they want to go back to Egypt. It's not that type of groaning. It's a groaning or a lamenting towards the Lord of crying out, do something because I know you can. 
So as we see this, as we wait for it, as the creation is waiting for glory, does that mean that we should all become like environmentalists? I mean, yes and no. We have a responsibility to care for the earth and the animals. God put it under our dominion. We're to care for these things. And Proverbs teaches that you know, we're to care for animals. And there's warnings, there's chastisement for those who harm animals. But no, in the sense that we don't elevate earth above humanity. We're not out to save the earth. God's going to, uh, he's, he's going to start over fresh. Same way that he breathed life into your mortal body and gave you salvation and will give you a new body, a new glorified body. Creation awaits for that as well. See, uh, the disasters and things, uh, it's like they're, they're not really, you would call them natural disasters, but they're really supernaturally motivated. They're supernatural in a sense. They're a result of sin in the world. That sin has affected us. It's affected the law. It's affected even creation, the earth here. So we're not to be surprised. It too is groaning for glory, and yet it is a catalyst, or it can be in our life, a catalyst actually for hope and not despair. Because something greater is coming. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. If anything, they are gospel opportunities for us. Opportunities to, uh, to, de- to declare the hope that we have. Opportunities for our own soul to be resolute and convinced of these things. Opportunities for us to share with others as we see the effects of sin on creation, on people. See, our groans aren't hopeless groans. They're hope-filled groans. And see, not only as we wait, as we make this declaration, we wait, we groan, and here's the final thing, we hope for what can be. See, hope, as I said at the very beginning, is the game-changing attitude in our suffering. Hope is the game-changing attitude in all of us who believe. See, without Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ and the hope of, fu- of a greater future of these things, then this is all we have. No wonder uh, despair. No wonder these things are, are, are prevalent in our society here because it's devoid of Christ. Christ who came and lived and died so that we could live and live forever. It gives us this hope, a hope being defined simply as a confident expectation of better days ahead. That even in our best days, even now, are not all that there is. So hopes and creation is hoping. We too are hoping. Look at verse 20. Creation subjected to futility. All to the curse, right? To futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it. Who subjected the earth to this? God did. God did not sin, not Adam here. God put the earth under man's dominion in the, in, in the beginning of creation, not vice versa. He did. And when sin entered the world as a result of Adam and Eve, right, creation was also corrupted and cursed. Man who would have to work the ground now that thorns and thistles occupy the earth. Now we too experience that and so does creation. And yet, as hope, Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Better days are ahead, even for our earth. Creation was subjected in hope of something better. Just like there, in the curse, in the midst of Genesis 3, God is pronouncing the curse on the woman. Get this glimmer of hope that a Messiah, someone greater, will come. That though his heel will be bruised, the head of the offspring of the serpent or the head of the serpent would be crushed. 
creation endures than the mistreatment and pain and disasters and death and hope for freedom in the same way that we do. We have this hope. That's where he ends. We wait, we groan, but we do so with hope, a hope of what can be. A hope of our salvation. It's this hope that we were saved. See, there's a hope for past things that we're set free from our sin, right? There's therefore now no condemnation. We have a hope in this present time right now that the Spirit is indwelling us and helping us walk through this life as we experience uh, even the presence of sin now. But we have a hope for the future, a hope that we cannot see quite yet. A, a hope that is... Ever been to a place or been planning like a vacation, somewhere you did not go, and so you're reading everything as it's describing it, or somebody else was telling you about it, and there's still just something. You've not seen it with your own eyes. You can't grasp it. It's like this a few weeks ago. My kids went to Camp Eagle for summer camp, and though Malachi was born there and lived his younger years, and they've been out there, I was describing for them what a week at summer camp would be like schedule and how they wake up and activities that they would go through and where they would eat meals and how they you know would be in their cabin with their campers and their cabin mates and all those those things and they couldn't see it and yet they hoped for it they were excited they were waiting patiently even as we began to pack and get things to to go there they were waiting for what they could not see with hope and a hope that had patience they were persevering even when it was tough and they wanted to go same is true in our life as we wait for this glory. We hope for what can be, though we have not seen it, though we read things like Isaiah 35 and other descriptions of it, we wait with patience. We wait with this hope. And this is the attitude that we must have. Remember where we started. Hope is the game-changing attitude. This is why through our trials, through our suffering, through temptation, why we must be convinced of this central point that the greatness of glory far outweighs the severity of suffering. It's as if every day in, the, in, in our life here, we have two opponents in the ring. In one corner, we have the glory that is, is coming. We, we have uh, God in one corner and we have our suffering in the other. And guess who wins every time? His glory far outweighs. And you know what the reality is? Even as we walk through this life, where where the passage is going to take us, this is like a spoiler alert for next week, even in the midst of all this, even as we say, yes, I get this, yes, I wait, yes, I groan, yes, I hope, but it's hard. We do not do it alone. Because where we'll get to next week is we have this hope and perseverance through sufferings because the Holy Spirit helps us in it. Guess who else is groaning as they wait? Holy Spirit. God in it all is sovereignly working out all these things for our sanctification, His glory. He has a purpose for it all, and He's carrying us through it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote something very similar to the church at Corinth that he wrote here in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17. It's on the screen here. So even though we have this hope, we groan, we're waiting, even when it's hard, he says this, so we do not lose heart. Why? Well, like, what about when I am, when I want to give up, when it is really hard, when my body is groaning because I'm getting old or because I've, it just, I, I, something's happened to it. It's as though our outer self is wasting away. No escaping that. Our inner self is being renewed day by 
today. That even in the outward things, our outward suffering, God is doing something greater in the inner man, in your inner being. It says, for this light momentary affliction, hold the phone. What? Yeah. Severity of suffering, the most devastating of trials. Light, momentary. Everything has an expiration date. As we compare it to the greatness of glory, it is light. Momentary. It doesn't say meaningless. It doesn't say painless. Just in our perspective, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us. It's doing something. It's working in us. It's equipping us for something, for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The greatness of glory, church, far outweighs the severity of any suffering that you may be going through. Recognize it's normal. It's part, it, it's part of life. Resolve today, right now. Don't leave without considering these things. Right now, have the right expectations. Glory is best. What I'm going through, even when it's hard, it's just for my good. It's for my Christ-likeness. It's only temporary. Rejoice. Rejoice that God is in control. He's given His Holy Spirit to help you. He's given His Word. He's given His church family. He's given you a small group. He's given you the people around you. Even if you are in the throes of excruciating labor, a better baby is coming. Something greater is coming. So we wait, we groan, we hope for better days are ahead. Do you believe that today, church? That's why Christ came. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. That we might have this hope. That we might tell others of this hope. That we would have this hope for eternal life. It's a hope that we remember in communion. It's a hope that we remember, but we also have a glorious future that awaits us. And that hope for that is what helps us in the meantime. This is what we are remembering. This is what we are celebrating, even as we take communion, that Christ suffered and died alone so that we would not have to. He deserves the praise and glory and honor for that, does he not? Let's turn our attention now and worship through communion.